Hello, this is Carol Platt-Liebau, president of Yankee Institute, and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. Today, we're delighted to welcome John Santa to the program. And John is, of course, a person that many of you know of wide and varied experience. Uh, he is the director of the former Malta Justice Initiative, uh, which seized operations a few years ago, having achieved its objectives, and the vice chairman of the Sentencing Commission for the State of Connecticut, of course, uh, involved with Santa Fuel Company and board chairman at H.J. Baker and Brothers, uh, along with a number of other different activities and interests. And we are delighted to speak with him about his work on the Sentencing Commission and his interest in helping former inmates thrive and how all of us uh, can do more to do that and to work together to make sure that all the human capital in the state of Connecticut but more importantly, the human beings can realize their full potential and do so in a way that works for everyone, including uh, the people who don't break the law. And so, John, welcome to YCT Matters. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for inviting me, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here. So, John, let's just start off. And you know, one of the things that I'm interested in is how did you become so interested in sentencing reform, in helping inmates uh, find their way to work and to a more productive way of life? Uh, where does your interest in these sorts of initiatives come from? It began on a very, uh, very personal, granular basis, Carol, when our, uh, our attorney at Santa Energy went to prison. He went there for a good and sufficient reason. He had taken money from his clients, which he shouldn't have done, and off he went to prison. I, we knew him for a long, long time. He was not just our attorney. He was a family friend, and we thought very highly of him, and both as an attorney and as a friend. did very, very good work for us. So I knew that he was, he, he, he fit that formula that so many incarcerated people do. Basically, good people do bad things. Good people do a bad thing. doesn't make them bad people, but then a bad thing, you got to pay a price. So therefore, when he went off to prison, I decided to go visit him. And when I did... I'd never been to a prison before. I'd never been inside a prison before. I never saw what a prison looked like inside before. I didn't know what prison life was like until my friend went away, my friend Stan. Right. And did what kind of prison did he go to? I mean, it was, was it Enfield. A... It was just a regular, a regular state prison up there okay. in Enfield, uh, up the top end of the state. There are, there are five prisons right in a row. Carl Robinson, Enfield, Willie Sobolski, Northern. Okay. So all right there. And uh, they're right in the, hard by the, the border with Massachusetts. And uh, it, was a, it was a prison, maybe 1,500 people in it. And uh, mm -hmm. that's where Stan was. And initially, I was, at that point in time, uh, about to be inducted into an organization called the Order of Malta. Roman Catholic men and women do work on behalf of the sick and the poor. And what I knew, first of all, was Stan was a good Catholic and there was no Catholic presence at the prison. So we started thinking about this, what we might do about that, and blah, blah, blah. And that eventually turned into a thing called uh, multi-prison volunteers. And we began to do some sacramental work and this and that at the prisons, which was very, very hard to do because prisons aren't, aren't designed to do that, nor are their systems welcoming to do that. However... Really? What, sorry, I just I, that's interesting to hear because you would think 
that if there was anywhere that needed religion, it would be prisons. Yeah, wouldn't you? You you would you would think that. Well, and so why is how is the how is the system? Yeah, it's very very hard to get qualified to go into prison. Okay. And to be vetted and approved as as a prison minister. Okay. And then it's difficult to find uh, time slots to go in there. And then once inside the facility, it's difficult to find places to gather. And you have to have special correction officers overseeing the events and the like. So it becomes some of an impediment to the otherwise uh, precise protocols of the prison. And therefore, really welcome, so to speak. So that's what it was. So anyway, we tried to do, do the best we could in many, many ways with Bibles and prayer books and whatnot, and a lot, a lot of good things. We did a lot of good things for people. However, we came across a chaplain from the women's prison out at York, York Correctional, a very well-experienced guy and a Roman Catholic deacon, and Dennis Dolan. And he said, look, guys, he said, it's wonderful, this spiritual work you're doing for these nice people coming out of prison. But, he said, if they get out of prison— and they can't get a job. If they get out of prison and they cannot uh, regain their personal integrity, if they get out of prison and they can't become a parent, a brother, a sister, a voter, and whatnot, they're coming back into prison. So he said, if you really, really want to do something for our sake and our, our faith, religion, Christian for them, help them get a job. And so therefore, at that point in time, we pivoted from a spiritual mission to one of education and enlightenment that we that we did. And we pointed our efforts towards three specific groups of thought leaders, the people in the uh, faith communities, the people in, in academia and in, in our universities, and finally, the business community. And the reason we oriented our efforts towards them was that all three of those groups have a vested interest in people making a successful reentry. Let's talk business, because I think that is of particular interest to Yankee Institute, in that what we know is that when a person comes out of incarceration and successfully makes the transition back to normal civilian life, everybody wins. Right. I see here a statistic that 93% of people who find jobs throughout their supervised release, which is parole, correct? Right. Right. Yeah, they they don't return to prison. Precisely. And that's something that's in everyone's interest. I mean, Absolutely. we we want people who are capable, you know, there I mean, obviously we all have to face reality. There are some people who, you know, are psychopaths and they're not going to be able to make it on the different outside. story. Whole different right. story. Whole different story. But people who are capable who have made a mistake and are capable of living a redeemed life, we should we should want to help. It's good for everyone if they can do it. And 93% of the people who find a job while they're on parole stay out of prison. That's good for everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. To to state it simply, Carol, we want to turn wards of the state into taxpayers. Right. Okay. Because the ward of the state, we all lose. Yeah. They lose. You lose. I lose. The society loses. We all lose. Become a taxpayer. Everybody wins. Yeah. Everybody wins. So- so that's, that's basically the, the, the banner under which we march and what we try to do, and hence our book, uh, The Justice Imperative, uh, hence our, the uh, study we did of, uh, of employers. Well, that is amazing. And so then this work continued, and how did you come to be on the Sentencing Commission? 
Well, through our work, we came to know Mike Lawler, who was then the uh, oh. undersecretary mm-hmm. of the Office of Policy Management for Criminal Justice Reform. Right. And uh, Pete Joya from CBIA and I were, were interested in, we're just, we were around in, in some of the meetings and whatnot. And what Lawler recognized was that the commission needed some people from the business community. Right. Some people who, who, you know, because the commission is made up of many people, most of whom work for the state or are lawyers or are in law enforcement, i.e. police chiefs or Department of Correction and whatnot. But they didn't have any business people on there. Yeah. And so Pete and I were the two business people that came there. It just so happened that I was also an activist as regards criminal justice reform. So that, that fit very well, too. So it was suggested by Lawler, and I was appointed by uh, Len Fasano, who was then the uh, – and, mm-hmm. and people on the commission are appointed by various people, the governor, the president pro tem of the Senate, the, the leader in the House, blah, blah. And my appointment comes from the minority leader of the, of the Senate, still does, as for that matter. Now it's Kevin Kelly. Yes. Was there anything that surprised you as a member, as, you know, vice chairman? I mean, you know, what have you learned? What surprised you when you were part of that? Well, first of all, it's a very, it's a very broad ranging group. I mean, I mentioned this police chief's on and the head of the Department of Corrections on and chief state's public defender, chief state's public attorney, the the chief state's uh, uh, victim's advocate, the head of the board of pardons and paroles, the head of the Department of Children and Family, uh, a number of judges, uh, someone from OPM. It's a very broad-ranging group of people that know a lot about what's going on in criminal justice to cover all the different aspects of it. And I, I think that's a, that's, that's a very good group to have. You know, it, it gives you a, a broad view of what's going on in criminal justice and enlightens you know, people in one sector might not know something that people in the other sector do know. And we, and sure. we haven't changed like that which is quite good, quite good. I think there's there's 25 members of the commission, all told. Some of these issues are one of the reasons why uh, all of us at Yankee Institute care so much about education reform, uh, because to us, it makes a lot of sense to educate children well, especially low-income children, to give them options to be able to get out of some of the failing schools and to fix some of the failing schools. Because a lot of the time, you have children who really don't have strong education, and they finish school, you know, they're passed along in this scheme of social promotion, they finish school, and they have no marketable skills. How are they supposed to get a job in the first place? Carol, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, the breeding ground where the folks or most of the folks who find their way into into the, our justice system are ignorance and poverty. Yes. Ignorance and poverty. So so those, those failing schools, uh, wherever they may be and whatever level they may be, those are, those are unfortunately the places where the opportunities for asocial behavior are much more rich than those for prosocial behavior. And, and, that, and once again, talk about everybody wins, everybody loses, everybody loses there. These kids are not necessarily dumb or mentally impaired or anything like that. Well, they really haven't been given a chance. And we talk to a lot of parents who are desperate to find an alternative, and they don't have the same options that affluent parents have, where if their local school isn't serving their children, they can't get them out. They have nowhere else to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a crime. You know, people want to talk about the school to prison pipeline, and yet they won't give the children any alternative 
besides a failing school. It, it's it's heartbreaking. Exactly, it is. And you know, you 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 say, you know, what then this whole process? What did I learn? I learned how how very very lucky I am to have been born where I was, to the parents to whom I was born, to have my wonderful family, all those people who loved me so much and affirmed me and and did so many good things for me. And so many of these young people that I've met in prison, they're infinitely more confused than they are malevolent. And yes, you mentioned before, some of them, some of them are really not well. They're not well, and they can't really function in society. But really, that's a small minority. Yeah. And so uh, I think we have to find a way. Obviously, it's any society's obligation, any government's obligation to keep law abiding people safe. But then I think we do need to find a, a way to do better by a lot of these young people, especially young men who mm-hmm. they're trapped in poorly performing schools. We, we just mm-hmm. have to do better by our mm-hmm. low income young people. As you've worked with some of these uh, young people, you know, I know that one of the things Yankee Institute works on as well on the other end is some of the regulatory impediments as well. Because, you know, there are some occupations I remember back in the day, there was some licensing issues that were a little bit ridiculous that prevented people, for example, with a felony from ever becoming a barber. And we were able to get rid of those because, you know, that really makes no sense. I mean, Right. You know, uh, a lot of young men can go into a neighborhood and, and do very well as, as barbers or something like that. Um, sure. are, are there any things that spring to mind that just make sense from the outset in terms of other things that, you know, people can do? Because obviously, a lot of this is as well a mental health issue. But in terms of regulations or in terms of other things that just need to happen for us to get a better handle on what's going on. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, <laughs> we had, a few years ago, we had a wonderful commissioner of corrections. Scott Semple was his name. Very good person, longtime DOC employee, and a very, very bright and open-minded man. When he retired, he said, John, I want you to do something for me, if you would. And I said, okay, whatever it is, I'll do it. And he said, there's a group we're going to start here, the Industry and Business Advisory Group. He said, I'd like to run it. So, okay, I jump in. Well, what this is, Carol, this was a group of Department of Correction people, uh, Office Policy Management people, and business people. And we brought together employers like ONG, like Marriott, certain hospitals and the like, and other manufacturers. And we put them together with the Department of Correction people and we learned what resources or what skill sets the employers wanted to have to employ people. And then DOC either either had training programs on their own inside the DOC, or they would furlough people. People could go out and work during the day and come back to prison at night. And therefore, we, we set up these, these, these transitions and, and smoothed them tremendously, tremendously. Unfortunately, right in the middle of that thing was COVID. And we, we had done all of our work by December 19 and January 20. Everything kind of went to hell in a handbasket. So that being said, I checked with our friends that worked on that. And guess what? There's now a statutory committee established called the Reentry Employment Advisory Committee to advise the Commissioner of Correction on alignment of education and job training programs offered by the Department of Correction with the needs of employers in the community. It's back. It's back. We're doing it. And so, therefore, if there's something that your members would like to call their state rep about, call them about this. 
Call them about the Reentry Employment Advisory Committee. That's it. That's the deal. That's the, that's the item right there. And this could be so so helpful. I could go into a lot of detail, but I don't think it's within the no, scope. No, I mean it seems to make sense. It seems it, to make it, sense. And now there are some of these. I mean, these are a little tougher questions, but I'm curious about it. And if I'm curious about it, then I know people listening are curious about it, John. Mm-hmm. And I know you're capable of handling tough questions. Yeah. You know, yeah. some of these black box laws that people have tried to pass where it makes it illegal to ask people, mm-hmm. you know, about the crimes they've been convicted of. What are your thoughts on those? Because I tend to be kind of against them. I, I mean, I'm willing to give people a chance, but I, I think it's unfair to prevent employers from knowing uh, what oh, they're dealing with. Without a doubt, that's unfair to keep them from knowing. I think that the problem with the box, have you been convicted of a felony? Yes, no. The problem with that box is if if that is used as, as a singular filter, right. if the answer is yes, then the answer is no. I right. You're not, right. You can't come here. Right. That won't do. Right. Uh, and I think if the answer is yes. Tell okay, us, explain, explain more. Tell us what right. you got. Tell us what's going on and tell us what you've done. Right. You know, I, I have just worked very hard and very long on a commutation of a sentence for a young man that, you know, he, he, he was a, it was a capital crime when he was a kid. Did a, did a drive-by shooting on his bicycle. Huh? And he got this sentence that was just completely crazy, unproportional. And he did a tremendous amount to rehabilitate and to correct himself in prison. I mean, I mean, I mean, taking every single course he could and being very well behaved and taking college courses. And he did a great job, a great job. He very much deserves a commutation. And he got one, thank God. But I think that I think that people ought to be given a chance to, to say, Carol, this is a crazy thought. But I think you have made a mistake in your life, haven't you? Maybe two. Oh, look, I mean, I I believe we're all sinners. You know what yeah. I mean? I know I have. I've I've made some I've made some mistakes. Absolutely. I've been on the wrong side of law. I shouldn't have done it. But yeah. But don't define me by the worst thing I ever did or the one right. bad thing I did do. Right. It's not helpful. It's not yeah. helpful. No, it's not. Um, and then you know, I'm curious. Now you know, we also have this epidemic of people who don't prosecute crimes. And to me, that seems unhelpful. You know, whether we need to think about how to help people recover better from, you know, find proportionate punishments or better ways to rehabilitate or better ways into society, it does seem to me, you know, you have to have standards or societies can't operate. And so as as we've talked, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that you're advocating not to have standards, not to enforce laws. What you're saying is don't define people by their worst moments. You take a look at them carefully. Am I correct in that? Yes, you certainly are. I think what will be helpful for for you and your colleagues and our audience is to put some, some historical perspective on this. You know, between 1980 and the year 2000, we quadrupled the prison population of the state of Connecticut. And I'm sorry, Connecticut, sure, but the whole nation, America, mm-hmm. quadrupled its prison population. And uh, my goodness, uh, the, the sentences became so unproportional, just way, way out of there, and, and no thought of any alternatives. And then we began to do things like eliminate the, the opportunity for people in in prison to get a Pell Grant, or, or even when they got out, eliminating the ability for them to get a Pell Grant. 
so they can get their education and go somewhere and get some get some credentials and qualifications. So you know, we we've we've learned a lot in America here, and I, I still think we got a ways to go. Uh, a number of our people, including our the, the executive director of the of the sentencing commission, recently went to Germany to see what's going on in Germany, see how they approach things in Germany. They approach them very, very, very differently. I mean, for instance, a typical correction officer in the state of Connecticut gets a job, he gets uh, 12 weeks of education, and off he goes, and now he's a CO, and that's that. In Germany, three years. It takes three years of training to become a correction officer. And most of them come out of, of the social service area. They're more supportive than constrictional. They're more building people up than breaking them down. And uh, it's important. And, and, but our, our, prison, our current prison system is preset for the not constructive side. I'm sorry to say. I wish it were more so, but it's not. There's some wonderful people in DOC. And people do a very, very difficult job. It's a hard job. I think harder than it really needs to be. But nevertheless, a very hard job. But I, 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 think, I think they're to be commended for doing the job they do. But, but still, we could do it. We could do it so much better, so much better. You know, it is, a, it is a very, very interesting subject. And I think uh, we all have, a, you know, a ways to go before we get it right. Because it does seem as though uh, American um, sort of penal culture goes in cycles you know it's as though we we go in one direction we don't like the consequences and then it's it's as though we overshoot in the other direction you know and then we don't like the consequences of that and there's got to be a way that working together we can come up with something that allows us not to that allows us really in a way to uh, find that optimal balance where we truly value human life. And that means we value human life of the people who have committed crimes. uh, And so we don't end up just locking them away and just sort of declaring them wholesale unredeemable. And where we are able to be discerning enough that we're not undervaluing, um, you know, for the ones who are truly violent, we're not Mm -hmm. sort of devaluing the people who would otherwise be their victims. There's got to be a way we can get the balance right. And I'm grateful to you, John, for all the good work you're doing and the care and the thought you obviously uh, put into making sure that those those that, you know, can be cared for and brought back and uh, and given a life of dignity and purpose, um, that that's happening for them. Well, it's very, very kind of you to say that. Uh, quite honestly, I feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to do this. You know, there's a lot of things in our world that uh, that are working towards 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 disunity and towards not having the center hold and the like. And you you don't know exactly where it is. Where can you step in and do something that actually makes a difference? And yes. I feel very privileged to have been able to uh, step into this role. And uh, I'm in it right now, and I'm doing the best I can. And uh, Hopefully it's helpful to uh, some people to become enlightened. Well, indeed. And it is a great gift to uh, have people who look for the spark of the divine in all of us. And so uh, thank you for your work and thank you for taking the time to speak with us on, uh, on YCT matters. Uh, We'll keep up with you and your work and try and do our best in our lane to uh, help where we can. 
And so thank thank you, John Santa, uh, formerly of the Malta Initiative, Vice Chairman of the Connecticut Sentencing Commission. Uh, This is Carol Platt-Lebow, President of Yankee Institute, and thank you for joining us for this edition of YCT Matters. I'll show you.